Welcome to another episode of That One Movie Podcast, also known as Top. I am your host, Jimmy Uthi, and this is a very special midweek episode of That One Movie Podcast. Star Wars just came out last night in the United States. However, our review of that will be coming out on our normal weekly episode, so stay tuned for that. This episode, however, is just me, no Holden, you're welcome, uh, and I will be looking deeply into the historical context of Martin Scorsese's next movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, based on the book by the same name, a book of the same name by David Gran, uh, who also wrote The Lost City of Z, which was made into a movie that's apparently pretty good. I haven't seen it, but he has a good track record. Martin Scorsese obviously has a great track record. If you're interested in this subject, make sure you listen to this. And if you like this, stay tuned for our weekly episodes. Um, that's about all I have to say. Enjoy this, and hopefully you like it. That one movie podcast. Stomp. The reign of terror is usually associated with the execution of thousands of people by the Committee of Public Safety during the French Revolution. For the Osage people, however, the reign of terror has a completely different significance. This is a story of serial murder. Corruption, greed, conspiracy, racism, and injustice. This is the Osage Reign of Terror. This podcast is the culmination of research from a wide range of scholarly historical literature. Nevertheless, the central narrative we will recount is heavily inspired by David Grant's 2017 book, Killers of the Flower Moon, about the Osage Reign of Terror. If you enjoy this podcast, you should definitely check out Grant's work. With that in mind, it makes sense to begin the story where Grant begins his book. May 21st, 1921. The setting, Greyhorse, Oklahoma, a settlement established by the Osage American Indians but served as a home to thousands of whites as well. Without adequate law enforcement, criminals and outlaws roamed freely, stirring up trouble. In the words of historian Carol Hunter, Osage County in the 1920s was the epitome of the Wild West. Now you've probably never heard of the community Greyhorse or of the Osage tribe. During the 1920s, however, the Osage captured national attention for being the wealthiest people per capita in the world. That wasn't always the case. Originally, the Osage lived in Kansas, but white settlers drove them off their land and forced them to resettle in a presumably worthless, rocky region of Oklahoma in the early 1870s. Little did anyone know, this so-called worthless land was located directly above some of the largest oil deposits in the United States. Prospectors who wanted access to this oil had to pay the Osage for leases and royalties. The more prospectors drilled, the more money the Osage community received. In 1906, Oklahoma decided to break up the Osage Reservation into individual allotments. Each member of the tribe, there were 2,229 at the time, received 658 acres to use as they pleased. That land was their personal property. The mineral rights to what lay under the land, however, belonged to the tribe as a whole. As part of the allotment agreement, each member of the tribe in 1906 received what was called a head right to anything beneath the surface of the community. So when the Osage began selling rights to prospectors to drill for oil, they distributed the money equally amongst those who had head rights. At first, this was a simple system in which each member of the Osage tribe received an equal share of the oil revenue. 
When people had more children or when someone with a headrite passed away, things got more complex. The main issue was that the number of headrites remained at 2,229, the number of members of the tribe in 1906. It never changed. If you were a member of the Osage tribe, you didn't just gain access to the money at the age of 18. Headrites could only be inherited from one of the original 2,229 people who received them in 1906. Okay, so what does this actually mean? Let's say you were one of the members of the Osage tribe in 1906 to receive a headright. You also have a spouse and two kids. Upon your death, your spouse and your two kids would each inherit a third of your headright if you decided to distribute it equally in your will. Now, let's say your neighbor also had a headright from 1906, but only has one kid with their spouse. Their spouse and their kid would each receive half a headright upon your neighbor's death meaning they would each get a greater share of the oil money than your spouse and your kids. If that was confusing, at least remember this. Headrights could only be inherited. They could not be sold. Also, headrights were incredibly valuable. In 1923 alone, the Osage distributed the modern-day equivalent of over $400 million between the 2,229 headrights or about $180,000 per headright. Considering that most families at the time had multiple people with headrights, the standard of living in Osage County was exceptionally high. In Killers of the Flower Moon, David Grant writes about how journalists at the time would tantalize their readers with stories of the quote, red millionaires with their brick and terracotta mansions and chandeliers, their diamond rings and fur coats and chauffeured cars. Simply put, the Osage were the envy of many Americans. But let's get back to May 21st, 1921. Molly Burkhart, a 33-year-old resident of Greyhorse and an Osage Indian, was happily married to her handsome, white husband, Ernest. Ernest had migrated to Oklahoma from Texas, where he had grown up as the son of a poor cotton farmer. He came to Oklahoma to work as a ranch hand for his successful uncle, a beloved local named William K. Hale. In Killers of the Flower Moon, David Grand describes Ernest as having, quote, a tendency to drink moonshine and play Indian stud poker with men of ill repute. But beneath his roughness, there seemed to be a tenderness and a trace of insecurity. And Molly fell in love with him. Though Molly knew some English, Ernest studied her native language so he could converse with her more naturally. He demonstrated his commitment to Molly by helping her cope with her diabetes and by telling her that he couldn't live without her. Ernest's friends ridiculed him for his love for Molly, but that didn't stop them from getting married in 1917. And on May 21st, 1921, the day our story begins, Ernest and Molly were hosting a luncheon with some family and friends. It was a day Molly had been looking forward to, but her mood had dampened when her older sister, Anna, arrived in a drunken stupor. Among Molly's guests was Ernest's aunt, who was outspoken in her racism towards American Indians. The last thing she wanted was for Anna to reinforce her negative stereotypes. Furthermore, it was prohibition, and Anna was breaking the law. Regardless, Anna continued to drink and stir up trouble at the house party as she fought with Molly's guests. In the evening, Ernest took their guests to a play in a nearby town. Meanwhile, Brian, Ernest's younger brother and former lover of Anna's, offered to take Anna home. Anna said goodbye to Molly, who was going to spend her night taking care of their ailing mother, and left with Brian. Molly never saw Anna alive again. Anna had gone missing for about a week until a father and his teenage son stumbled upon her body at Three Mile Creek near a town called Fairfax in Osage County. They found Anna on her back with her hair twisted in the mud and her vacant eyes facing the sky. Worms eating at her corpse. 
After inspecting the scene, the lawmen surmised that Anna had been sitting on a rock, drinking, when someone came up behind her and shot her at close range, causing her to topple over. The Shound brothers, who performed the autopsy, said the fatal bullet was nowhere to be seen. They should have located it in Anna's skull, but it wasn't there. The same day Anna's corpse had been found, an oil worker discovered another body within Osage County. It was Charles Whitehorn, Anna and Molly's cousin. He had been shot execution style. The reign of terror was just beginning. Following the death of her sister, Molly Burkhart felt that officials weren't doing enough in their investigation of Anna Brown's murder, so she turned to Ernest's uncle, the powerful William K. Hale, to get something done. Hale was perhaps the most influential white person in all of Osage County. Locals went so far as to call him the King of the Osage Hills. Hale made his money by accumulating land he purchased from the Osage following allotment, which he used to raise cattle. In general, he was a highly respected figure in Osage County. Politicians needed his support in order to win elections, and many of the Osage Indians considered him the county's greatest benefactor. Hale had provided support for the Osage before they were flush with oil money, donating to charities, schools, and hospitals. Hale had even been a pallbearer at Anna's funeral and vowed to obtain justice for her murder. Several weeks after Anna's funeral, a man who had been arrested in Kansas for forgery sent a letter to the sheriff in Osage County stating that he had information regarding Anna Brown's murder. Both Hale and Sheriff Freeze rushed to the jail to interrogate the forger, who confessed to being paid $8,000 by Anna's ex-husband, Oda Brown, to murder her in cold blood. However, there was no tangible evidence outside of this confession to support the forger's claim that he was, indeed, the murderer of Anna Brown and that Oda Brown had paid him to do it. Consequently, Oda was released from custody. But what about Brian Burkhart, who had given Anna a ride home? Officials found Anna's signature alligator purse at her residence. Having been seen with it at Molly's luncheon, the purse being at her house suggested that Brian did indeed drop her off at home. Additionally, someone had called her telephone, and there were records of someone taking the call at 8.30pm. Authorities assumed Anna would have been likely the one to take the call, which was well after she came home from the luncheon, further pointing to Brian's innocence. But if Brian didn't kill Anna, the forger didn't either, and neither did Oda Brown, who did? William K. Hale, determined to avenge Anna's death, took advantage of his close relationship with the county prosecutor to pressure him into continuing the search for Anna's killer. The county prosecutor had the Shounds, the two brothers who had performed the autopsy, dig up Anna's grave and look for the fatal bullet once again. The undertaker who witnessed this second autopsy described how the Shounds put on gloves and took out a meat cleaver, cutting Anna's head into, quote, sausage meat. Once again, the Shound brothers found nothing. The bullet seemed to have magically disappeared. In July 1921, the Justice of the Peace closed his inquiries, stating that Anna Brown's death remained unsolved, as had the murder of Charles Whitehorn. Also in July, Molly and Anna's mother passed away from a mysterious illness. Bill Smith, who was married to Molly's sister Rita, was convinced Molly's mother had been poisoned. Minnie, another of Molly's sisters, had died in a similar mysterious fashion in 1918. Could she have been poisoned as well? Still with no inkling of who had been targeting Molly's relatives, more Osage Indians were being murdered. In February 1922, William Stepson, a 29-year-old champion steer roper who was in fantastic shape, 
left his home after receiving a phone call. Upon his return several hours later, his wife and his two children witnessed him fall rapidly ill and die later that night. David Grand described Stepson's final hours as, quote, hideous torment, his muscles convulsing as if he was being jolted with electricity, his neck craning and his jaw tightening, his lungs constricting as he tried to breathe until at last he suffocated. Since few people were trained in forensics and most places didn't have a crime lab, poisoning became the perfect method for murdering the Osage. Less than a month after Stepson died, another Osage woman was poisoned to death. In late July, an Osage man named Joe Bates drank some whiskey he received from a stranger, after which he began frothing at the mouth before collapsing. Bates had a wife and six children. With the continued rise in suspicious deaths, many Osage Indians looked to Barney McBride, a wealthy 55-year-old white oil man, to go to Washington, D.C. to get federal authorities to investigate. Perhaps government officials would listen to their plight if it came from the mouth of a white man. McBride had been respected by the Osage much like Hale had been. He had married a Creek Indian, been a longtime advocate of Indian affairs in Oklahoma, and knew many officials in Washington. In many ways, the Osage viewed him as the perfect messenger to go to the Capitol. When he checked into his rooming house in Washington, he received a telegram that simply read, Be careful. Henceforth, McBride carried two things with him, a Bible and a gun. In the evening of his arrival, he went to the Elks Club to play pool. He went outside for a moment when someone grabbed him and tied a burlap sack tightly over his head. The next morning, McBride's body was found in Maryland with more than 20 stab wounds. His skull had been beaten in and he had been stripped naked. According to the forensic scientists who had studied his corpse, they determined that there had been more than one assailant. Furthermore, authorities suspected that his killers had tracked his journey from Oklahoma. It quickly became clear that there wasn't just one murderer of the Osage. It was an elaborate conspiracy. Nevertheless, nearly half a year passed without a murder. That is, until two hunters stumbled upon the body of Henry Roan, a 40-year-old Osage man who was found with a gunshot wound in the back of his head in his Buick, which had crashed in a valley off the side of a road. Roan was married with two children and had been troubled with financial issues for much of his adult life, despite his wealth. However, he could always rely on William K. Hale for a loan. Roan considered Hale his best friend and even made him the beneficiary of his $25,000 life insurance policy. Another person affected by Roan's death was Molly Burkhart. Before she met Ernest, Molly had been briefly married to Roan. The two were pressured together to preserve the heritage of the Osage tribe since they were both full-bloods. His death shook her even though they had split up more than 20 years earlier. Roan's murder signaled to the tribal people of Osage County that their reign of terror was far from over. Paranoia began to spread. People installed electric light bulbs on the outside of their houses to scare off would-be assailants. They grew suspect of neighbors and friends, wondering who would be the next victim. Bill Smith, Molly's brother-in-law who had been performing his own investigation into the murders, moved his family to a new house when he heard people lurking outside his previous home during the night, not once, but several times. Bill and his wife Rita felt safer in their new house because many of their neighbors had guard dogs. Shortly after moving in, however, the guard dogs started dying. Poisoned. Bill confided in a friend that he didn't expect to live much longer. At approximately 3 a.m., the morning of March 10th, the Smith House exploded. 
Bill, Rita, and their 19-year-old white servant were all sleeping inside. Only Bill survived the explosion, and he was quickly taken to the hospital where he slipped unconscious before he could be questioned. Two days later, he regained consciousness but was delirious. He died four days after the bombing, and still nobody knew who was involved in the conspiracy to murder the Osage. Actually, that's not entirely true. One man had compiled evidence about the murders and believed he was close to finding the killers. W.W. W. Vaughn, a 54-year-old attorney living in the town of Pahuska in Osage County, received a phone call in June 1923 from his good friend George Bighart to come speak with him at a hospital in Oklahoma City. Bighart knew that he had been badly poisoned and was near death but he had incriminating information he needed to share with Vaughn about his would-be killers. In order to get to Oklahoma City before Big Heart died, Vaughn would have to hurry. Before leaving, he told his wife about a hiding spot where he had stashed his evidence regarding the murders. If anything was to happen to him, he needed her to know where it was so she could turn it over to the authorities immediately. Vaughn arrived in Oklahoma City while Big Heart was still conscious. Big Heart shared his knowledge about his killers before passing away later that same day. Vaughn had remained at his side until the end. Shortly afterward, Vaughn contacted the sheriff, claiming he knew who killed Bigheart as well as other names involved in the conspiracy. He would take the first train from Oklahoma City and explain everything when he returned to Osage County. The train arrived without Vaughn. A group of Boy Scouts discovered his body 36 hours later. Vaughn had been thrown from the train. Vaughn's wife, heartbroken from the news of her husband's death, went to his designated hiding spot to turn over his evidence to the authorities. It was empty. All the incriminating information had vanished. By this point, the official death toll of the Osage Reign of Terror had climbed to at least 24 members of the tribe. In the words of David Gran, the world's richest people per capita were becoming the world's most murdered. All the while, Molly Burkhart's world was falling apart. Over the course of five years, she had lost all three of her sisters, her mother, and other friends and family in Osage County. She quit having guests over and no longer attended church. Her diabetes seemed to worsen and her neighbors wondered if she was beginning to go mad. Months went by and Molly could feel herself deteriorating. She contemplated how similar her situation was to Minnie and her mother's before they died. Her diabetes wasn't worsening, she realized. She was being poisoned. Finally, in the summer of 1925, the Bureau of Investigation, later renamed the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, in 1935, got involved in the Osage murder case. J. Edgar Hoover, only 29 years old at the time, ordered an agent named Tom White to lead the case. White was a tall, middle-aged, old-style lawman who had served in the Texas Rangers. Now, Hoover was counting on him to solve the case and legitimize his department. After his first few days in Osage County, White had already made a few key conclusions. Repeat killers tend to rigidly adhere to a routine, yet the Osage murders were carried out in a bewildering array of methods. There was no signature. This, along with the fact that bodies turned up in different parts of the state and country, suggested that this was not the work of a single killer. Instead, whoever was behind the crimes must have employed henchmen. The nature of the murders also gave some insight into the mastermind. The person was not an impulsive killer, but a connoisseur of plots who was intelligent enough to understand toxic substances and calculating enough to carry out their diabolical vision over years.
White also discovered how difficult it was to get people to share information. They were either prejudiced against American Indians, corrupt, or afraid of being murdered themselves. Therefore, White committed to becoming the public face of the investigation while others worked undercover. He referred to his undercover agents as cowboys. White reevaluated the murder of Anna Brown. He claimed it would have been impossible to not find the bullet during the autopsy unless the crime scene had been tampered with. Thus, a conspirator must have swiped it sometime during the investigation before the autopsy was performed. White caught a break when a couple of witnesses came forward that they had seen Brian Burkhart with Anna Brown in a car after he had initially dropped her off from the luncheon. Brian hadn't lied about taking Anna home that night, but he had failed to mention that they had gone out again later that evening. Furthermore, witnesses reported seeing an unidentifiable third person in the car with them. As White and his cowboys were piecing together information, they grew suspicious that there was a mole among their intermediaries. They interrogated one of their informants named Pike, who revealed that he was working for William K. Hale to manufacture evidence and create false witnesses to throw off the investigation. He also claimed that Hale, Brian Burkhart, and Ernest Burkhart, Molly's husband, were all part of a conspiracy related to Anna's murder. White investigated Hale and the Burkhart brothers more deeply. He also wanted to gather information from the lawyer of Bill Smith, Molly's brother-in-law, who had been blown up in his house but survived for four more days. Could Bill have said something to his lawyer that would be of any help to the case? Bill's lawyer admitted to White that he had no idea who killed Bill. However, he recalled an instance in which Bill had told him that his only two enemies in the world were William K. Hale and Ernest Burkhart. White was also suspicious about Hale becoming the sole beneficiary of Henry Roan's $25,000 life insurance policy. Moreover, he found it odd that Hale was not even considered a suspect after Roan's murder despite having the most obvious motive. White tracked down the insurance salesman who created the policy. The insurance salesman stated that Roan did not get the insurance policy for himself. Rather, Hale created it as a form of reimbursement for the debt he said Roan owed him. David Grant describes White's reasoning in Killers of the Flower Moon. White found it hard to believe that this debt was real. If Roan had really owed Hale that amount of money, then all Hale would have had to do was present proof of the debt to Roan's wealthy estate, which would have reimbursed him. Hale had no need to get an insurance policy on his friend's life, a policy that wouldn't have a significant return unless Roan, who was then in his late 30s, suddenly died. Still, there was no proof, no fingerprints, no credible eyewitnesses that Hale had shot Roan or that he had ordered one of his nephews or another henchman to do so. Nevertheless, White believed that if Hale was indeed the mastermind, he was motivated by greed. Thus, White followed the money for his next clue. What connected the murders of all these Osage people? What did they each have to offer? Headrights, the golden ticket to a life of wealth. But Hale couldn't inherit headrights unless the Osage put him in their will, which they hadn't. So where was all the money going? To Molly Burkhart, the Osage woman who had her life torn to shreds by the reign of terror. Of course, the money didn't go directly to her. Instead, it went to her financial guardian, her husband, Ernest Burkhart, nephew of William K. Hale. The reason Molly had a financial guardian was the federal government mandated it. Many Americans deemed the Osage as reckless spenders who needed guidance. Hence, authorities evaluated each tribal member's competency. Those deemed incompetent would be subjected to a paternalistic relationship in which a designated white person would oversee and restrict their finances. 
In practice, the more Indian blood an Osage had, the more likely they were to be declared incompetent. Molly, being a full-blood native, was determined by authorities to be incompetent and designated a guardian. In this regard, she was fortunate to be married to Ernest, who ultimately became her financial guardian. Other full-blooded Osage weren't as lucky, being assigned to white guardians who exploited the system. Historian William Broad describes how it was typical of guardians to buy a car for $200 and then sell it to their ward for $1,250. But back to the case. Tom White re-examined the deaths of Molly's relatives to try to find a pattern. He quickly surmised that the chronology of the deaths was no mistake, but part of a ruthless plan. David Grant explains how Anna Brown, divorced and without children, had bequeathed nearly all her wealth to her mother, Lizzie. By killing Anna first, the mastermind made sure that her headright would not be divided between multiple heirs. Because Lizzie had willed most of her headright to her surviving daughters, Molly and Rita, she became the next logical target. Then came Rita and her husband, Bill Smith. White realized that the unusual method of the final killing, a bombing, had a vicious logic. The wills of Rita and Bill stipulated that if they died simultaneously, much of Rita's headright would go to her surviving sister, Molly. Here, the mastermind had made one miscalculation. Because Bill unexpectedly outlived Rita by a few days, he had inherited much of her wealth, and upon his death, the money went to one of his relatives. Still, the bulk of the family's headrights had been funneled to Molly Burkhart, whose wealth was controlled by Ernest. And William K. Hale, White was convinced, had secretly forged an indirect channel to this fortune through his subservient nephew. But could this really be the motive behind the Osage reign of terror? Did Ernest Burkhart have these evil intentions when he married Molly a full four years before Anna's murder? He would have slept with Molly and raised children with her, all the while being part of a horrendous scheme. Could someone really be that vile? By this point, Tom White was nearly certain that Hale was the mastermind behind the Osage Reign of Terror. If his plan were to succeed, Hale would inherit an estate worth $2.5 million, as well as an annual headright income of $250,000. In today's money, his estate would have been worth over $36 million, and his annual headright income would have been over $3.6 million. Still, White didn't have the tangible evidence to prove Hale's guilt. To make matters worse, Hale Hale's power and influence made it difficult to close in on him. White met with Dick Gregg, a 23-year-old former member of the Al Spencer gang who was serving a 10-year sentence in a Kansas penitentiary. Gregg claimed to know some information about the Osage murders and agreed to speak in exchange for a reduced sentence. Gregg told White that his gang's leader, Al Spencer, received a request from Hale to murder Bill and Rita Smith for $2,000. Spencer denied the request, stating that he wasn't interested in killing women for money. Though Gregg's testimony gave White more confidence that Hale was behind the Osage murders, it still had no legal value. Gregg had an obvious motive to fabricate the story in order to reduce his sentence, and the only person who could verify his testimony, Al Spencer, had been gunned down by lawmen. Still determined to get his sentence reduced, Gregg spilled more names. There was just one problem. Seemingly everyone he mentioned who could have been used as witnesses to convict Hale had died from mysterious causes. Hale appeared to have people poisoned and beaten to death to silence them. In one case, he hired someone to tamper with the brakes and steering wheel of someone's car, causing a fatal rollover accident. 
In October 1925, White finally got the evidence he needed when he interrogated Burt Lawson at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. Lawson had been convicted of multiple crimes. In 1922, he was charged with murdering a fisherman but was freed after proving he acted in self-defense. At the time of his interview with White, he was serving a seven-year sentence for burglary. Lawson revealed that he had been working as a ranch hand for Bill Smith in 1918, where he also got to know Ernest and Brian Burkhart. In 1921, he caught his wife having an affair with Bill Smith, causing his family to tear apart. Then in 1922, Lawson stated, Ernest Burkhart tried to hire him to kill Bill Smith for $5,000. At first, Lawson rejected the offer. After his arrest, however, Hale repeatedly met with him in jail and convinced him that he would need the money to pay for his lawyers. Upon his release, Hale picked Lawson up from jail and the two met with Ernest Burkhart, who had the box containing the explosive nitroglycerin. Together, the three of them drove to the Smith household. Lawson exited the vehicle, placing the bomb in the cellar and lit the fuse. Lawson wrapped up his confession by stating that he blew up the Smith home and that he was, quote, persuaded, prompted, and assisted to do it by Ernest Burkhart and W.K. Hale. With Lawson's confession, Whitehead lawmen seize Ernest Burkhart at his favorite dive bar. At first, they couldn't locate Hale, fearing that he had escaped. It turns out they didn't need to find him. He waltzed right into the sheriff's office confidently, wearing nice clothing, saying very matter-of-factly, understand I'm wanted. While Hale was confident in his ability to avoid justice, officials got Burkhart to crack. Though he was not granted immunity, Burkhart spilled all the details about his relationship with Hale and about their involvement in the Osage murders. Ironically, he explained how Burt Lawson, whose confession got him arrested in the first place, had nothing to do with the explosion of the Smith house. The real culprit was a man named Asa Kirby, who White had long suspected was the maker of the bomb. Unlike in the story Lawson fabricated, Burkhart was sleeping in bed with Molly when the explosion occurred. Hale, knowing the explosion would be that night, was in Fort Worth so he would have an alibi. Then Burkhart named John Ramsey, a bootlegger, as the murderer of Henry Sloan in Hale's life insurance scam. He also gave authorities the name of the mysterious third man seen with Anna and Brian on the night of Anna's death. It was Kelsey Morrison, one of the local informants hired by White to track down the identity of the third man. Burkhart stated that Morrison was the one who shot Anna in the head. After the interrogation, officials quickly seized Ramsey and got him to confess, giving credence to Ernest Burkhart's testimony. Authorities also brought Morrison into custody and made sure Molly, whose health was so poor that she was near death, was far out of the reach of her husband and William K. Hale. Her health immediately improved, though she refused to believe her husband was involved in such a heinous crime. Molly insisted, quote, My husband is a good man, a kind man. He wouldn't have done anything like that and he wouldn't hurt anyone else, and he wouldn't ever hurt me." End quote. The trial of William K. Hale and Ernest Burkhart was long and arduous from the prosecution's standpoint, mainly because Burkhart refused to testify in court. He finally caved, however, and was sentenced to life imprisonment and hard labor. Hale was given a life sentence as well, though it was difficult to find a jury of 12 white men to convict him of killing American Indians. In the aftermath of the Reign of Terror, the Osage persuaded Congress to pass a law barring anyone who was not at least half Osage to inherit a head right. They also praised Tom White for his work to bring Hale, Ernest Burkhart, and other conspirators to justice. 
The case had received national attention. One historian claimed it was even more talked about at the time than the infamous Scopes Monkey Trial. Regardless, the case helped legitimize J. Edgar Hoover and his Bureau of Investigation, which would grow much more powerful in the following decades. Tom White decided to leave the Bureau after the investigation to become the warden of a prison in Kansas. In one final twist of fate, William K. Hale served his life sentence as an inmate in White's prison. As for the oil production in Osage County since the Reign of Terror, it was boom or bust until it had a resurgence in the 1970s after the formation of OPEC in the Middle East. By the 1990s, however, oil wealth became more of a memory than a reality for most Osage people. And what about the bullet that magically disappeared from Anna Brown's skull? More than likely, the Shound brothers, who had performed the autopsy, did find it, but destroyed it because they were part of the conspiracy. Investigators also suspected them of being the ones who were poisoning Molly, pretending to give her insulin for her diabetes. Unfortunately, historians have come to find that the Osage Reign of Terror stretched far beyond Hale and Ernest Burkhart. In his 1995 journal article, Osage Oil, Mineral Law, Murder, Mayhem, and Manipulation, Reynard Strickland suggests that as many as 200 tribesmen may have been killed in the 1920s in order to transfer their head rights to intermarried whites. In an interview, Killers of the Flower Moon author David Gran was asked if he believed Ernest Burkhart married Molly to gain control of her head right. He responded, from the available records, we don't know for sure. But Molly Burkhart's descendants believe the marriage had been conceived as part of the scheme. And thus concludes the Osage Reign of Terror. Again, I just scratched the surface of the story with what I included in this podcast, so I highly recommend you at least read David Grant's Killers of the Flower Moon or see Martin Scorsese's film adaptation when it hits theaters. The movie is set to begin principal photography in March of 2020. The final question then is why is the Osage Reign of Terror still relevant? Why would David Gran write a book about it nearly a hundred years later? Why would legendary filmmaker Martin Scorsese feel compelled to make a movie on the subject matter? Why would I produce this podcast? The Osage Reign of Terror is far more than an entertaining yet tragic chapter in the drawn-out history of white atrocities against indigenous people. One of the main themes of the Osage Reign of Terror is the difficulty to obtain justice for crimes committed against American Indians. Unfortunately, that remains the case to this day, especially in regards to Native women who are raped or sexually assaulted on tribal land. Jasmine Owens, an expert in criminology, depicts the severity of this issue by comparing the prison sentences of four adult men between 2003 and 2010, all of whom were convicted of the same heinous crime, the rape of a seven-year-old girl. One man received a sentence of 25 to 35 years in Massachusetts. One received 20 years in Texas. One received 18 years in Arkansas. And Ronnie Tom of Washington State served less than two years because he committed his crime on an Indian reservation and because federal attorneys declined to prosecute him. Owens goes on to explain how Tom was not proven to be less culpable for his crime than his fellow offenders. There was no determination of insufficient evidence, nor was there any prosecutorial or police misconduct causing the case to be dismissed on a technicality. The difference between Tom and the other convicted child rapists are race and location. Because Tom is a Colville Indian who committed this crime on the Colville Indian Reservation in eastern Washington, 
His case falls under federal jurisdiction. In other words, the tribal judicial system could only do so much to punish Ronnie Tom under the law. In fact, Tom did receive a max sentence from the tribal judge, one year in prison and a fine of $5,000. The tribal court was able to add a second year to his sentence because he was convicted of another attempted rape. To receive a sentence longer than two years, Ronnie Tom would have had to have been prosecuted by a federal attorney. So why wasn't he? Owens explains how most of the time U.S. attorneys won't take native rape cases because of a lack in forensic evidence or other faults in the investigation process. Simply put, they don't take cases they don't think they're going to win. However, there was ample evidence in Tom's case, so this justification doesn't fit. Instead, Owens implies that U.S. attorneys didn't take the case merely because they didn't want to. Former U.S. attorney Margaret Chiara explains how other prosecutors have told her that, quote, they want to do big drug, white-collar crime, and conspiracy cases instead. According to statistics from the Justice Department cited in the New York Times, prosecutors turned down nearly two-thirds of sexual assault cases, about half of murder cases, and over 60% of cases concerning sexual abuse of children on Indian reservations. To make matters worse, crime rates on reservations are more than two and a half times higher than the national average. American Indian women are 10 times more likely to be murdered than other Americans, four times more likely to be sexually assaulted, and more than one in three Native women will have either been raped or experienced an attempted rape during their lifetime. Unbelievably, many humanitarian organizations claim these numbers are gross underestimates. Jasmine Owens went so far to say that, quote, rape and sexual violence in Indian country have reached epidemic levels, end quote. According to the Department of Justice, 86% of rape and sexual assault of Native women is committed by non-Native men, a trend that reflects the violence of the Osage Reign of Terror nearly 100 years ago. Now you're probably screaming in your head that something needs to be done about this. And to be fair, the U.S. government did take action. Confronted with similar statistics about crime on tribal land, then-President Barack Obama called this injustice, quote, an assault on our national conscience that we can no longer ignore, end quote. In 2010, he signed the Tribal Law and Order Act and aimed to reduce the prevalence of violent crime in Indian country and to combat sexual and domestic violence against American Indian and Alaska Native women. The law received high praise from most tribal governments and was a step in the right direction, bringing awareness to injustice, promising increased training of tribal law enforcement, a more formalized and predictable investigation process for rape victims, and greater access to rape kits to facilitate the collection of vital evidence. Nevertheless, the tribal court was still limited in its ability to hand out longer prison sentences. The Tribal Law and Order Act only increased the maximum sentence tribal courts could give to three years, leading Owens, a criminology expert, to conclude that the legislation, quote, would produce little to no practical difference, end quote. Instead, Owens suggests that, quote, the only way to achieve justice, fairness, and consistent outcomes is to put more trust in tribal governments and to allow those with an interest to make headway against the dire situation of American Indian and Alaska Native women, end quote. In other words, we can't afford to wait for another Tom White to show up to fight for justice on behalf of American Indians. Instead, tribal governments should be empowered to enforce justice within American Indian reservations. Make no mistake, we are living amidst another reign of terror, the rape and murder of thousands of Native women. And this one isn't exclusive to the Osage. 
the current reign of terror is somehow deadlier and far more widespread than its violent predecessor. Except this time, there's no mastermind to blame, and most of the victims are not wealthy. The fight for justice will be an uphill battle. Thanks for listening. <laughs>